In our summer teaching series, Arrow Prayers, we're exploring intense prayers by people of faith from the New Testament and the Old, women and men, leaders and followers, believers and one unbeliever. Arrow Prayers are short, simple prayers, a few words, a sentence or less, that focus faith and sharpen our awareness of God. Arrow prayers give us direction and empower us to walk with God and help us to fulfill the command in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. The Greek word translated without ceasing has the idea of continually or always. This term was used for a tickle in one's throat that made it feel like you were just about to, <clears throat> just about to cough. And we should always be just about to pray. It's better to pray at all times than to make it a rule to pray at certain times. And we may reach into our quiver for an arrow prayer in times of faith or fear, in the midst of struggle or overwhelmed by God's goodness. This season has pushed us out of comfort zones, but that can be a good thing because growth doesn't happen there. It's between rocks and hard places and in the storms, valleys, and peaks of life that our lives are formed in Christ's life. Our hope is that arrow prayers will be added to your quiver. Any archer will tell you that the only way to hit the target is to let it fly. Now, maybe the most fervent arrow prayer in Scripture was voiced by a person looking for a miracle, not a savior. And we find the story in Mark chapter 9. Now, initially, the disciples try to shield Jesus from uh, this father, uh, whose son suffered seizures beset by an evil spirit set to destroy him. And we know nothing about the faith of the father. In fact, it's best to assume that he didn't really know who Jesus was and didn't have faith in him. But his ardent love for his son is evident throughout the story. He's desperate. He doesn't know what to do. And so when he hears that Jesus is nearby, he heads to the countryside and gets his attention. And when Jesus questions his faith, the father responds, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And this father's seemingly contradictory request, it sums up our need for this arrow prayer because it gets at the underlying issue for broken, fragile humanity. Uh, and as the New Testament calls us treasure. We are treasure stored in earthen vessels. Well, that treasure is the Holy Spirit. And unless we're filled and dependent on him, we can believe and have a measure of faith, yet struggle to activate our faith and, and then place our trust in God. And as a result, we're inconsistent. We're in and then we're out and then in again with the Lord. When I was in high school, I became so frustrated with this inconsistent pattern in my spiritual life, you know, my inability to trust God and take him at his word, that I wrote a song. And the title of the song is Consistently Inconsistent Consistently. And I can remember the first verse, but I can't remember the chord progression, so I can't play it for you. But here's the first verse. It says, I'm consistently inconsistent consistently. I'm highly resistant to any lasting change. You see, I'm, I'm doing what I've always been doing with short breaks in between. I'm consistently inconsistent, consistently. Well, that expressed my frustration in my inability to place, consistently place my trust in God. Now, in order to become more spiritually mature, understanding the relationship between faith and trust is essential. 
Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Faith is the inner confidence in the Creator that He can and will do all the things He said He would do. And faith comes first and is essential to trust. Trust is the activation of that faith. For example, we can say we believe that a chair can support our weight, um, but it isn't trust until we sit down in that chair and allow it to support our weight. When Peter cried out, Lord, save me, as he sank into the sea, he had faith, but he had to connect with Jesus in order to trust that he could walk on water as well. Thomas cried out, my Lord and my God. He had faith, but he had to connect with Jesus to activate faith and place trust in Jesus as the living Lord. In both cases, it was, it was a connection to Jesus that activated faith to trust in God. Now, the Holy Spirit is our connection to Christ today, and the Spirit connects our faith personally uh, with the Lord Jesus and so that we can trust him. Both Peter and Thomas had physical evidence that bridged their faith to trust. <clears throat> but remember in, in Jesus' encounter with Thomas, Jesus went on to say, because you, have, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And so Jesus looked ahead after his resurrection and ascension to heaven when he would no longer be physically present, uh, anticipating our struggle uh, to trust him. We believe, we have a measure of faith, but we struggle with trust. Uh, we're often in situations where we want to believe that God will act according to his nature and purposes, but we're held back by incomplete faith. For instance, in Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus says, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink, or about your body, what you'll wear. Your Father in heaven cares for you. Well, while we might believe that, we struggle to place active trust in God's promise, and so we keep working and worrying as if it all comes down to us. Well, this Father's arrow prayer reflects our struggle to trust God. Lord, I believe will help, help my unbelief. And that's the most honest, faith-filled way to pray, as we struggle to walk by faith, not by sight. All right, now finally, let's set the scene for this arrow prayer. Back in Mark chapter six, the disciples experienced the sudden shift from being onlookers, watching Jesus minister, to being ministers themselves. Invested with Jesus's authority, they were sent out in pairs into the towns and villages surrounding Nazareth uh, to cast out demons and heal the sick. They experienced the power of God and the thrill of ministry firsthand. But as Jesus, Peter, James, and John return from the Mount of Transfiguration, they find the rest of the disciples in a tense situation. They'd attempted to heal a demon-possessed boy and failed. And as Jesus arrives at the scene, we'll see that despite their efforts, the disciples need Jesus's help. They're stuck in a form of unbelief that depends on formulas instead of faith. And this will become a lesson on faith and prayer that will shape the apostles' ministry after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. A desperate father and the Lord Jesus will teach the disciples an arrow prayer. Look at Mark chapter 9, verse 14, beginning there. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. And as soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, 
I brought you my son, who's possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Now, most of us get a bit uneasy when the topic of demon possession comes up. Studying the life of Jesus in the book of Mark leads to a lot of queasiness, actually, because it seemed he was always dealing with demons and unclean spirits. Early in his gospel, Mark told how Jesus entered a synagogue and encountered a man with an unclean spirit. And a few verses later, we're told that Jesus and the disciples went through Galilee, proclaiming the message and casting out demons. In Mark 3, 14 and 15, we read, He appointed twelve designating them apostles, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Mark 5 describes Jesus healing the the Gerasene demoniac, a man literally driven out of his right mind by a host of demons. Mark 6 depicts Jesus again, sending out the 12, and he again gives them authority over unclean spirits. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus casts the demon out of the daughter of the Syrian Phoenician woman. Mark's point seems to be that if you stay with Jesus and you're serious about following him as a disciple, you cannot escape this demon thing. And that's because the places Jesus will take you are places in need of a savior, places where someone is hurting because something evil has taken over. Now today, we may not want to call it demonic. We may refer to it by more medically or psychologically sophisticated names, uh, but um, can we not all agree that something has gone wrong for too many people? It's obvious that something has grabbed hold of their lives and it won't let go. And it may be demon possession, the control over a human form by Satan himself or his assigned advocate, or it could be oppression by a demon just being harassed by evil spirits. Um, but like the very first disciples, Jesus has called us to do something about that. Um, But genuine faith is required, and otherwise we'll fall flat. Now, just before this encounter, Jesus took Peter, James, and John to Mount Hermon for his transfiguration. Jesus's transformation gave a glimpse on that mountain of his true essence, his glory shone through. It was a very important faith moment for Peter, James, and John. When Jesus and the three disciples came down the mountain, they discovered that without Jesus there physically, the faith of the other disciples is weakened. And this story follows a a similar uh, motif to the story of Moses on Mount Sinai, uh, receiving the Ten Commandments. Moses came down to find the people partying and worshiping a golden calf. With Moses gone, they'd lost faith. And here Jesus finds the disciples weakened and failing in faith. With Jesus and their leaders gone, they'd lost focus. What they, dis- what they considered the exercise of faith was insufficient for the need at hand. Imagine what is going on inside these disciples now. Jesus was away on a spiritual retreat with his inner core of disciples, Peter, James, and John, the A-team. And the other disciples were most likely already feeling like they were second string And then a father asked them to cast the demon out of his son, and they can't do it. And having scribes around, watching for them to mess up, certainly didn't help. Apparently, the discussion around all this got so noisy 
that it allowed Jesus to slip into the crowd unobserved. The boy's father speaks out and he explains the situation to Jesus. Due to a demon, his son could not speak and the boy was prone to seizures. The demon literally seized him and threw him to the ground. He knew of Jesus's ability and possibly had heard about the that the disciples had gone out two by two, casting out demons and healing people. But in this case, the disciples took a crack at it, but they were ineffectual. And the implication is that the disciples should have been able to handle this. And Jesus is not only going to rebuke the unclean spirit, but he's going to give it to the disciples as well. Mark chapter 9, verse 19 reads, O believing generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Now, Jesus is not addressing the father. His comment is directed toward the crowd, the religious leaders, and especially the other nine disciples. It was the disciples' lack of faith that specifically caused the situation. And it's clear that Jesus is weary of this. How long must I put up with you? Wow, ouch. Bear with you is the term. It gives the picture of holding oneself up under a load to support another person. And so their, their dullness, their spiritual dullness had become a heavy load on the Lord. However, the disciples did not fail because they did not expect anything to happen. They most certainly did. We often think of faith as some kind of expectation, and if we can just believe hard enough, it will happen. But these disciples did believe something was going to happen and were surprised when it didn't. They expected the boy to be delivered. They'd done this before. And we can imagine they used the same approach and prayed the same prayers as when they'd been sent out two by two. They expected something to happen, but Jesus called them faithless. They had faith, but it had changed from faith in God to faith in a process. They thought that if they said the right words and followed the right ritual, that the demon would have to leave. Without even realizing it, they had transferred their faith from God to a formula. And this is what we often do. We get to thinking that it's the words we say or the way we say them or our obedience, that these are the real reason that things happen rather than God acting. And we approach it as a kind of a deal with God um, if we do or say or think something, he has to do something. But God doesn't make deals, and he doesn't follow our rules. Jesus reproved them for what amounted to dishonest beliefs. Faith that means something is not focused on a formula. A faith that does the impossible is focused on God himself for one very important reason. It's up to him, not us. Now, all of us should be able to sympathize with these nine disciples. All of us know what it's like to be faced with evil, to have the desire to cast it out, but feeling powerless in the process. The father brought a demon-possessed son. For us, it might be a neighbor with a horrible marriage or a family member with a diagnosis of cancer or a deeply depressed son or daughter or an inability to find enough work to survive. We'd love to be able to cast out adultery or cancer or depression or joblessness, but we can't. And that is the beginning of the good news. Uh, we will never be of help in, to the Savior. We will never be a part of what he is doing in this world until we stop pretending to be the Savior. 
And Jesus makes our options clear. He says, bring the boy to me. Verse 20, so they brought him. And when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. He's often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. Uh, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus. Well, everything is possible for him who believes. And immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he, he said, I command you, come out of him. Never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that they said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. Can you imagine the stress this father had been under? His boy suffered sudden, violent attacks, and compassionately, compassionately, Jesus references his suffering. How long have you been dealing with this? He said, it's horrible. It's been going on his whole life. The, the seizures are frequent. They're unpredictable, devastating. And most parents, most of us have had, if you're a parent, the heart-stopping experience of losing track of a child. Um, how would you like to deal with a son who threw himself into any nearby body of water or any open flame? The man is, this father is absolutely desperate. And Jesus represents his last hope. He invites Jesus to do something, if he can, if he can. Well, maybe the father felt the impotence of the disciples meant that Jesus had kind of lost it too. Maybe he was working off rumors and had never seen Jesus's power. And Jesus quickly indicates that it was not a question of his ability, uh, but it was a question of the father's faith. And he pushes responsibility back on him. Everything is possible for him who believes. The man cries out, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And the statement is paradoxical, but it's not contradictory. We are always invited to exercise faith to pray for more faith. And a faith declares itself openly uh, and at the same time recognizes its weakness and pleads for help is a growing faith. And the father realized that if he were going to help his son, he would have to take responsibility for his lack of faith while placing his trust in Jesus. And when Jesus noticed the crowd converging on the scene, he acted quickly. And this was great theater and the people didn't want to miss out. And Jesus addressed the demon personally and directly commanding authority as God himself. And the demon was so violent upon departure, it left the boy laying limp and motionless, pallid as a corpse. But when Jesus touched him, his strength returned. Honest unbelief is enough. Out of the honesty of his weakness, the father cast himself on the Lord. And when we're honest about the weakness of our faith and humbly ask the Lord to help us in our unbelief, a personal connection is made. This is where faith becomes trust. And even though his faith was as small as a mustard seed, it was able to move a mountain. His son was healed. And the moment the father spoke those words, the moment he cast himself in his weakness back on the Lord, he made the connection, placing his trust in God 
Nothing is impossible for those who are willing to do that. Jesus is never the problem. We're the problem. We focus on methodology or our ability or the sheer mass of our prayers, and none of that replaces a personal connection with Jesus, which comes through a prayer relationship, a relationship that is, that is characterized by prayer, mediated by the Holy Spirit. That's why this arrow prayer, Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief, is so vital. It places us in the position to receive. Uh, It's a position of humility and grace. This is prayer that overcomes unbelief. Mark 9, 28 and 29. It says, after Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, well, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. Now, Jesus taught elsewhere that there are differences between uh, demons, uh, and here indicated that this kind was particularly difficult to dispel. And rather than castigating them for their failure, Jesus pointed them to the true source of power to meet such a condition. They had failed to realize that there was no hope to dislodge it except through a believing appeal to the power of God. They had failed to maintain their continued sense of dependence upon God's power through continued communion, this continual connection with him. And having known the power to cast out demons, they'd taken it for granted. From the disciples, we learn that if we're going to go after something evil in this world, and that is our mission in Jesus's name, we had better have our spiritual act together. We better know how to pray because it's in our prayers that heaven and earth, they come together. In the words of theologian Karl Barth, He said, to clasp hands together in prayer is the beginning of a great uprising against the disorder of the world. In prayer, it's in prayer that we bring the boy to Jesus. Now, prayer is not pious manipulation of God to get what we want. He does not mean prayer uttered at the moment because Jesus himself did not pray uh, when he cast out this demon. Um, And most likely, the the disciples had actually prayed something. But no, what he means is it requires a lifestyle of prayer. This kind cannot come out, be driven out, except by a heart that is kept fresh and alive and in touch with God by a life of prayer continually. That that word, pray unceasingly, like we're about to cough, we're always about to pray Uh, This is where Jesus's power came from. He was always in touch with the Father. He was always drawing upon his Father's power. He always walked in reliance upon God. He referred every event of his existence to the God who indwelt him, and he constantly prayed to the Father in expectation of his work. This is the prayer that wrestles alone in the night to submit one's will to God's. This leads to a fresh and vigorous relationship with God. And this prayer leads us to trust God. This is a life of prayer. The movie Shadowlands, based on a book by C.S. Lewis, um, Surprised by Joy is the name of the book, <clears throat> but it, it portrays the joy and pain of his relationship uh, with an American writer named Joy Gresham. Um, They had a growing friendship that led to a marriage of convenience. The Oxford professor wed the single mother in a secret civil ceremony so that Joy could gain English citizenship. And eventually it was discovered that Joy 
had terminal cancer and Lewis realized his love for her. Joy's cancer went from, uh, went into temporary remission and for a season, she and Lewis experienced the depths of committed love, uh, committed Christian love. And during this time, an Anglican priest talked with Lewis about prayer. And in their conversation, we hear a mature description of how prayer works. The priest said, I know how hard you've been praying, and now God is answering your prayer. And his implication was this. You've been using the right formula, Clive, and it's working. Bully for you. But Lewis will have nothing of it. He responded, that's not why I pray, Harry. I pray because I can't help myself. I pray because I'm helpless. I pray because the need flows out of me all the time, waking and sleeping. It doesn't change God, but it changes me. And that is the prayer that casts out the kind of evil that only comes out by prayer. And if we want to activate faith to trust God and see him work, whatever the situation, bring the boy to Jesus and pray this father's arrow prayer. Lord, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. May we pull this prayer from our quiver and watch God work.